Good afternoon. Welcome to JS Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Fun show for you today. More fun than the ending of last night's Toronto Blue Jays game. For sure. Jays lose four to three in 10 innings. Scoreless through seven. What a battle. Kevin Gosman, six shutout innings, eight strikeouts, arguably an early hook at just 89 pitches, but this is the time of year. You keep the long view in mind. Zach Wheeler on the other side, four shutout, just two hits in his first game back off the IL without even a rehab start. That's a heck of a rehab start. Four innings against one of the top in, top offenses in baseball. Uh, Noah Syndergaard, two innings clean as well. And then you get to the eighth and the Jays get to Dominguez. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. hits a three-run home run. Everything looks great. You're up three, nothing, six outs to go. You turn it to Jimmy Garcia, who has been a rock for you for a lot of this year, and he gets in trouble enough so that Jordan Romano comes in for a potential four out save. He cannot lock it down. Inherited runners come across. They're charged to Garcia, but Romano takes his sixth blown save of the season. Then in the 10th, Oh, by the way, after that Vlad home run in the eighth, you loaded the bases up again with one out and uh, couldn't add anything on. In the 10th, you load the bases with one out again and a tough luck line drive right into a double play. So you go to the bottom of the 10th. Adam Simber comes in instead of Anthony Bass. And it's an interesting choice. Now, there's a runner on second to start the inning. We know that they trust Adam Simber in situations with men on base because of the ground ball profile. I maybe want a bat missing guy there a little bit. Simber also comes in and immediately faces a lefty. We know the Jays have tried to avoid too many lefties with Anthony Bass, but here's the one question I have about it is say Simber gets through the 10th. Then Bass would almost surely be the next man up Trevor Richards, maybe because he, he has been, tough-ish on lefties, but Trevor Richards is not the guy you want in the 11th inning against the top of Philadelphia's order. Anthony Bass would then come in against Schwarber and Bryce Harper, two lefties. So bit of an interesting choice. John Schneider defended it afterwards when asked uh, if perhaps Anthony Bass was dealing with something because he hadn't pitched in a little while, uh, said nothing's wrong with him. He was available. They just liked Simber in that spot. Justifiable enough. Some questions about what the game would have looked like from there had the Jays been able to keep it a tie, but they couldn't. Adam Simber gives up a walk-off single, the fifth hit of the game for Matt Veerling, getting that OPS all the way up to 630. So the Jays lose 4-3 in 10 innings. They use four relievers. They're four highest leverage relievers on average since the trade deadline, by the way. That's the other thing to note there is Anthony Bass has not been used in as high a leverage situations as Garcia, Meza, Romano, Simber. So maybe it's just the trust factor with Simber. Anyway, they can't close it out. Two bases loaded opportunities with one out squandered in late innings. Vlad's home run, which was a feel-good moment, no longer felt as good. The Yankees and Orioles also win. So you're now six and a half back of New York. 
13 games remaining for Toronto, 14 for the Yankees. Still two up on Tampa, two and a half up on Seattle in that first wild card spot because both of those teams lost as well. Um, but you're now just six and a half up on Baltimore and the earliest you could possibly clinch is Sunday. Still 99.9% playoff odds though. We're, you're cruising okay there. We're going to talk to a number of guests throughout the show. We got Robert Orr, baseball prospectus on later, Mike Petriello of MLB.com, Kayla McGrath of The Athletic. But first, the guest. Uh, rare that we get him on. It's Dan Schulman of Sportsnet. Dan, how are you? I'm good, Blake. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I uh, was especially happy that the Canadian women's national basketball team came through after the Jays blew that one, picked the spirits back up with a late night victory. Did you get to catch any of Canada, Serbia? It's funny you ask that because uh, honestly, you and I did not rehearse this. Uh, but when I uh, got back to my hotel room last night and kind of got on Twitter and I saw uh, an update, I can't remember if it was from you or Grange or who I, I'm not sure. And I said, oh, yeah, they're playing and found it on ESPN Plus, was in the U.S. at the time and watched the fourth quarter. And they hung on for a seven point win. And I remember them. I think it was the first game they played in the Olympics was to Serbia, if I'm not mistaken. I uh, did those games and they lost that game. And. So this is a huge win. I know, I think they're with Australia and France, among others, on their side of the draw. So uh, it looks to me, I looked at it a few days ago, like they got the tougher side of things. But I guess if you can just be in the top four in your pool, that means you might have an easier crossover quarterfinal game. So, you know, that's the good news. But it's nice to see um, some of the younger players getting more runs, specifically Kayla Alexander. Um, who's really, really good. And um, I, I didn't get why she didn't play more the last couple of years at times. And I don't know, you know, all the ins and outs of, uh, of the situation, but um, they look good last night to have Kia nurse back and so on. So hopefully they'll have a good showing. Yeah. Seeing Kia back healthy is a, a lot of fun. Natalie Achanwa, who was, you know, played last time out, but was basically playing on one knee. Um, you mentioned Kayla Alexander taking on a bigger role. You also have Letitia Amahair, who's still in yeah. college and playing a big role. Uh, and you're right. It is a tougher group. Uh, I think, you know, you could probably pencil Molly into uh, not make it through. We would have penciled Australia to make it through and they got stomped by France yesterday. So yeah. uh, all bets are off as far as Japan, France, Canada, Serbia, Australia go. So good start there. Reminder that all of these games are on Sportsnet. You're going to want to PVR them, though, because last yeah. night's 11 p.m. game is the friendliest schedule we get for the uh the group stage here. You're looking at 4 a.m. later tonight for Canada's next game as they take on France. Dan, even though you're not on this series, I imagine that's a morning PVR game for you. Uh, yes, that, that that will be the case. So, you know, it's one funny thing just to jump back on the basketball schedule. Like last Men's World Cup China, last Olympics Japan, this Women's World Cup Australia, next year's Men's World Cup, I think is Indonesia, Philippines, Japan, yep. if I'm not mistaken. Like, who did we tick off in the in the Western <laughs> Hemisphere here? Like, you know, like, could we get a game not at four in the morning? So uh, it, w- it would be nice to have some some uh, easier times to watch. But, yes, I'll be PBRing some basketball. And since I'm off 
this weekend. I'll be watching a lot of baseball live. That's for sure. I want to uh, I want to keep up on the Jays, obviously, till I get back and see them in person on Monday. Well, make sure you get your Apple TV Plus ready for Friday. A lot of drama going around right now about Aaron Judge's 62nd home run, Albert Pujols' 700th home run, both potentially being on Apple TV Plus on Friday. Um, without getting into the the politics of you know those station decisions and things like that, when you think of something like Michael Kay potentially not calling Aaron Judge's 62nd home run, the record-setting home run for the Yankees. You have played the national broadcaster side. You've played the um, team broadcaster side. What does a moment like that mean to someone who calls every game of a team? And would you, in that situation, be fighting or nudging like, hey, I got to be the voice of this thing? Um, I don't think I'd be fighting or nudging. I'm not a fighter or a nudger, (laughs) but... um... You know, if it's on Apple, Apple uses their broadcasters, right? So I, I don't know. Uh, I haven't talked to Michael Kay about it. I, I'm sure he will be tremendously disappointed if he does not get to call 61 or 62. Uh, I don't know if they're the Sunday night baseball game on ESPN or the Saturday on Fox. I haven't I haven't looked at that for the Yankees. But, yeah, when you're a, an announcer for a team and you do 130, 140, 150 of their games – you want to be there for the big moment. If you're the radio play-by-play announcer, you always are. Right? That's 100% mm-hmm. a lock. On television, not always the case. And there are more of them. There are more exclusives now than there used to be. So, um, you know, I feel for somebody like Michael Kay. You know, I'm sure he's in, as invested in the Yankees as I am in the Blue Jays. And, and I, I'm sure he would love to call it. But this is it, – it's funny. Every time a Blue Jay game is on Apple – there are always tweets about it from Blue Jays fans, which I get, and they direct them to, it could be me, it could be Hazel, it could be Jamie, it could be Siddle, like it could be any of us, as if we have anything to do with it. And there's always this, not always this, there is sometimes this misconception that it's a Blue Jay thing or a Rogers thing. or And, and you know, as you well know, whether it's Aaron Judge and the Yankees or Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and the Blue Jays, this is an MLB thing. Like it's a deal they made with all, with Apple and, and it covers all 30 teams. And, you know, if you're yes or sports net, there's nothing we can do about it. So it's one of those, it is what it is things, but it, it, it is interesting. Like secretly, privately, will Michael K be rooting for Aaron judge not <laughs> to hit the Homer on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday to save it for Monday, you know, that sort of thing. I, I, I would get it if he did. Uh, a little bit um you know you want to be there for those moments when you're the the announcer for the team well let's let's put the question on your shoulders then are you going to be rooting for Aaron Judge not to so that you can call it on the Toronto side Monday Tuesday Wednesday you know it's funny I was thinking about it on the plane home this morning it's it's really a, a unique situation so first of all obviously he plays for the opposing team um secondly um, he is on the verge of tying and then setting an American League record. I don't know how you feel. I'm a major league record kind of guy more than a league-specific kind of record kind of guy, especially as the lines have really blurred over the last uh, you know, couple of decades. Uh, number three, and this, this is the big one, and everybody feels differently about this. If you said to you know, a bunch of different baseball fans, who do you think is the – the true deserving single season home run record holder. Some people would say Barry Bonds. Some people would say Roger Maris. Some people would say Babe Ruth. And some people will say, once he gets to 62, Aaron Judge. And they'll all make passionate arguments about their cases. So it's a tricky one because some people don't think this is a big deal at all. And some people will look at 62. I believe some people will look at 62 and say, 
he's the true single-season home run champion because the only three guys to hit more did it under dubious circumstances. So I've been thinking about it a little bit. I kind of haven't worked my way through it. Oh, and then the last thing is, of course, they play for a rival and the team that people love to hate and the first-place team in the division and, you know, all that stuff. So there's a lot going on in this one, but uh, I want to give it the attention it deserves. Um, You know, whether you think of him as the true record holder or not, he's having a sensational season. Like, these kinds of years don't come along very often. We all know how great Vladdy's year was last year. This year is another step or two up from that. It's just a phenomenal season that he's having. And I, I want to give it the attention it deserves. It, you know, it'll also depend, is it 8-1 to one for the Blue Jays when he <laughs> hits it? Is, is it a 10th inning tie-breaking home run? So, as you can tell from my long and winding answer, I haven't quite sorted through all of this yet. <laughs> uh, neither have I, and that's yeah. why I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on it. In terms of my own personal opinion, you know, Barry Bonds has the record. He did that stuff. He he has those numbers and never, you know, dubious circumstances for sure, but never against the rules of Major League Baseball at the time. So uh, at least not in a way that was caught. So I do still think, though, that this is special because of the offensive environment we're playing in and because, you know, we made a huge deal all year long about Austin Matthews setting a Leafs goal record because of the history of the Toronto Maple Leafs franchise and things like that. Um, I think it's just, you know, it's really special too for Judge to just set the Yankees record, um, let alone the American League record. I, I, and so it's it's a big one for me, even if you don't get into what is the actual major league record. Um, Dan, I want to pivot to back to last night's game quickly before we, we look ahead. Um, the decision to use Adam Simber in the 10th instead of Anthony Bass. Now, Adam Simber has been used in a bit more leverage than Anthony Bass by John Schneider since Bass was acquired. So maybe not entirely surprising there, Uh, but Bass has been by a lot of metrics, their best reliever since they acquired him. Um, What did you make of that decision, especially given that Bass hasn't pitched in a little bit now? Yeah. So we talked about it on the air a couple of times. Um, Definitely more when, Simber came into the game, it, it makes me feel like something's going on with Bass. Now, I know John Schneider was asked about the game, and he said, no, he's fine. We just preferred the matchup. They don't always tell us everything, and they have that right to not always tell us everything. So um, I, I don't know if there's something going on with him or not. Again, I wasn't in the room after the game and, and, and wasn't there for the Q&A with John Schneider. But um, it, to me, it, it feels like one of two things. Either there's a little something going on with Anthony Bass, or uh, I know they like Simber. We know they like Simber against lefties. Um, as counterintuitive as it appears visually, given that he's a side-arming righty, he's got very good numbers against lefties. Anthony Bass has extraordinary numbers against righties, not nearly as good against lefties. And, and Philadelphia had four or five lefties in the lineup last night, and maybe they just didn't want him in there against a lefty. That's the only other thing I can think of. Either there's something going on with him, or they didn't want him in there against lefties. Um, it, it, it didn't work. Simber has had a great year. Two things about Simber. To me, he's a tough guy for the 10th inning with the runner at second because he does not strike out as many guys as, as other people. He'll get soft contact. He's had a terrific year. He leads the major leagues in appearances. But to me, he's not an ideal choice for the runner at second kind of situation. And also, he hasn't looked as much like himself the last couple of weeks to me. And I wouldn't blame him if he's a little bit worn out. He always takes the ball. He always wants the ball. 
And I think they got to get him some rest before the playoffs. I think they got to, once they get to wherever they need to get and they feel content with their positioning or seating or whatever, I think he's one of the guys they got to shut down for four or five days because he is, he's pitched a ton in terms of bass. You know, at some point it's going to become obvious whether there's something going on with him or not. You know, um, I mean, Mesa Garcia, Romano and Simber all pitched last night. If they have a high leverage spot, you got to figure out, you got to figure Bass is going to be in there tonight if he's okay. And I do wonder if, if maybe you just kind of stumbled on something there as to why. And, and now I don't know why the team wouldn't just come out and say this. Um, you know, Anthony Bass hasn't pitched in, in five consecutive days now. You know who's right by, if we include his Miami time, who's right behind Adam Simber in total games pitched this year? It's Anthony Bass. Simber's tied for first. Anthony Bass uh, is fifth. So maybe this is, maybe they're doing what, what you're kind of prescribing there for Adam Simber. They're just, you know, Anthony Bass's turn was up first. Uh, I don't know why they wouldn't just come out and say that if that was the case, but maybe an explanation there. Yeah. Uh, and, and maybe it's, they don't want the Rays to know that they're a man down if they're a man down, but, but I think they've done this a couple of times before this year, again, without announcing it. There were, there were a couple of times where, this is going back to like May, I think, where Romano was. Is there anything going on? And then Jimmy Garcia. Um, I think there was there was a stretch or two where he didn't come in. These guys have been worked hard. They 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 really really have. The Blue Jays have played in like the third or fourth most you know one run and two run games in baseball, and you know they've pushed their relievers hard this year. So again, I don't have any any inside knowledge about whether or not there was something going on um but it 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 feels like maybe they were just giving them a little bit of a breather last night that has to be the hope um obviously carrying an extra two relievers right now um because of the expanded roster and because they only have four starters uh, on the roster we're gonna see mitch white at some point this weekend uh penciled in for for saturday but we'll see how today goes um in terms of that last spot, Julian Merriweather went down yesterday. Were you surprised at all that it was Foster Griffin coming up and not Matt Gage, who has comparable AAA numbers and was also pretty good for the Jays earlier in the year? That that one was a. I, I know these things are like fairly low leverage in the in the big picture, but that one was a bit of a head scratcher for me. Yeah, me too. Because uh, I always thought Matt Gage would get back at some point, and and I haven't you know, dug deeper to say, is there anything going on there? Like, did he do something or, you know, because he's not an overpowering guy, you know, the stuff doesn't blow you away, but all he did when he was with the blue Jays was come in and he actually worked his way pretty quickly into, you know, pretty high leverage situations. Some of it was out of necessity and he did, he did well. Um, he didn't appear to be nervous. He got the outs he was asked to get. He got caught in a numbers crunch uh, you know, like Zach Pop did a couple of weeks ago, just, hey, you're optionable, somebody's got to go, and then he never came back. And it, it it is a little bit strange for me because they, you know, certainly could have used a second lefty at times, and Kikuchi having a roster spot has complicated things. But to your point, I, I was a little bit surprised. Um, when I heard Merriweather was going down, I thought it might be Matt, I thought it might be Matt Gage. But uh, you know, John Schneider, when he has talked about, he gives updates on what's going on, this and that, and the minors and health and stuff. He hasn't mentioned, and Gage has been healthy, but he hasn't mentioned Gage very much. He's mm-hmm. talked about Taylor Saucedo um, and, you know, him trying to work back to health. He gets asked about Nate Pearson a lot, <laughs> so he an- so he answers about Nate Pearson, but usually it's uh, in direct response to a question. But uh, I was a little bit surprised it's Foster Griffin, and, 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 
you know, who knows how many appearances he gets? Who knows if he's a consideration for a playoff roster? Like you said, this is we're talking about the fringes of the roster right now. And they've got they've got 28 guys on the roster at the moment, obviously. That does not include Lourdes Gurriel Jr. That does not include Mitch White. So let's say for the playoffs, should they get there, they're drawing from a pool of 30, if you will, including White and Gurriel. So four of the guys who are in that group aren't going to be on the roster. So that you know they're going to have to trim it down from what they've got right now for the playoffs. For sure. And you know, I, I you look and the four starters are going to be on there. Um, six relievers, if they're healthy, are locks. They might even consider Trevor Richards a lock. Um, so then if Richards isn't a lock, you're looking at three spots for Richards, White, Kikuchi, Pop, Merriweather, Gage, Griffin, whoever. Um, and that's before considering, well, what if you carry an extra position player as well? Because you want Moreno on there and you want Gurriel back and um, things like that. Let's talk about Mitch Gage or Mitch, Mitch Gage, Mitch White, um, just for a second. I, I assume it's going to be Saturday that he starts. That sounded like the plan on paper and nothing has dramatically changed since then. Mitch White's last outing was a six inning follower outing on that doubleheader day. The best performance he's had as a Blue Jay, maybe the best performance that he's had other than one seven inning stint uh, with the Dodgers what did you see from Mitch White in that outing that you would be looking for this weekend to, you know, have, I mean, for him to even be in the discussion of he yep. should be a, a bulk guy on a playoff roster. So let, let's back up for a second. I, I think I'm not sure if white, if white is Saturday, that means Manoa is tomorrow. Yes. And if Manoa is tomorrow, that means they want Manoa in the Yankees series Wednesday. Two days ago, they were four and a half back with 15 to go. Now they're six and a half back with 13 to go. I don't know if the math makes sense anymore. Um, You know, if you pitch Manoa tomorrow, you can pitch him Wednesday against the Yankees. And then his next turn would be in the Baltimore series. You don't want to pitch him in the Baltimore series unless you've got an excruciatingly important reason to pitch him in the Baltimore series. So, you know, then you're looking at like eight days off before game one. So I'm not, and again, I'm not in Tampa, but in about an hour and a half, the media in in St. Petersburg, I guess, will meet with John Schneider, and one of the questions will be, who's pitching tomorrow? And whether he answers it before the game or after the game, I don't know. But it wouldn't shock me if White is tomorrow, or White slash bullpen is tomorrow, and Manoa is Saturday. And then what you're doing is you're saying Manoa's not pitching in the Yankee series. And what you're kind of saying is, we're focusing on the wild card. Now, they've got three games with the Yankees. I get that. Like, what if they sweep the Rays and the Yankees stumble this weekend and all that? But it, it, these are, I think, fascinating decisions to make because if you pitch Manoa Saturday, you get him an extra day. Then his next one, they don't play Thursday, so his next one would be Friday against Boston. You get him an extra day, and then you'd get him two extra days before game one of the playoffs. And there's, you can make a reasonable argument that that might be the better course of action right now at four and a half, two days ago, I wouldn't have said it, but at six and a half right now, I think it's certainly a a conversation, but to, to your point about Mitch white, what I thought he did better. uh, I thought he used his fastball more. Um, He's not getting as much chase on his slider, especially his two strike slider as I think he needs to get and wants to get, and maybe is accustomed to getting. Um, and I think he, you know, became a little bit predictable. He'd get to two strikes. He might get ahead with a fastball. And then at 0-2, they wouldn't chase a slider. 
uh, wanted to. They wouldn't chase a slider. And he said to me, every time I throw a ball in a two-strike count, I'm helping the batter. I'm giving them more confidence. I'm giving them more information, all that sort of thing. So I thought he mixed it up a little bit more. Um, I thought he used his fastball more. And both Mitch and Pete Walker told me they wanted him to pitch at like 80 to 90% intensity that they feel he can repeat his delivery better. It doesn't cost him any velocity and he can locate better. Now I've never pitched at any sort of intensity, so I don't know how you do that. Like how do you pitch at 80 to 90% intensity with a hundred percent of the velocity? Um, but he, he definitely had a good outing and, and he, in my mind, he is a consideration for, for the playoff roster. Certainly he would be for the second round. And, and even in the first round, like if you start, Manoa, let's just say you go Manoa Gosman. Um, if something were to happen, if you don't have Mitch White, like if, if a guy gets hit on the knee by a comebacker in the second inning, if you don't have Mitch White on the roster, then you've got to go, let, for argument's sake, to Stripling. And then you don't have Stripling available if you've chosen Barrios for game three. You get where I'm going. Like, like mm-hmm. White, you know, White's a guy who can give you four or five innings. And that might be important to make sure that Phelps and Simber and Mesa and all those guys don't have to pitch in a game if the starter gets knocked out early in game one or two. So, um, but it's interesting. Do they go 13 and 13? Do they go 14 position players and 12 pitchers? You know, what's more important, a pinch runner, defensive guy, an extra arm, a long man, um, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in the room for those conversations. I, that, I love that kind of stuff. Me too. They're so much fun. And it's, you know, it's to use the old Draymondism from basketball. There are 82 game players and there are 16 game players. Well, there's yeah. 162 game value to a guy versus what is your utility in a three game series? And what is the likelihood, you know, what is the likelihood you're going to need a second lefty in the bullpen specifically for that reason versus someone who can give you some bulk. It's uh they're fascinating choices. Yep. Um, I thought that was a great point you made about juggling the Manoa rotation. If you kind of implicitly concede the division, um, I, I think that lines you up in a, in a cool way for the ALDS as well. If Manoa starts the the game one with a little better rest, and maybe I hadn't considered this, but if you have him on one day's extra rest and then two days extra rest, maybe you're okay in that ALDS say starting him on short rest because he's had a little extra rest leading into it. Um, like you said, fascinating, uh, fascinating things to consider. Lots going on. And, and you know what wouldn't shock me, too? And I'm not saying they'll do this, but we talked about it last night. In 2020, Hyunjin Ryu was their best pitcher. Yeah. He did not start game one. He started game two. Why? Who knows? Was it to get him an extra day's rest? Uh, was it um, be- because game two is the either clinch it or, you know, do or die, you got to win it game? I don't know. But. I don't think it'll happen, but if, if they came out and said Gosman one and Manoa two, it wouldn't, wouldn't shock me. Like this is a group a front, you know, this is a front office that will get creative. will think outside the box. will do unconventional things. Sometimes they work. Sometimes they don't. I'm one where, you know what? Don't poke the baseball gods too much. He's your best guy. Send him out there in game one, give yourself the best chance to win game one. Um, then your, you know, then your confidence, your psychology, your everything else going into game two to me um, is is better. In the playoffs, I 100% think you've got to worry entirely about winning that game, and then you figure out tomorrow, tomorrow. So, but they they've got a lot of things to consider. You know, they've got 
Zimmer and Bradley and Merrifield, and you mentioned Gabriel Moreno, like around the fringes of the roster, it's going to be um, very interesting. I, you know, I've got some guesses and that I, <laughs> I think I know what they'll do, but uh, they, they've got to get there yet, right? And the best thing they can do for themselves, if they win three out of four at the Trop this week, they're four up on the Rays with nine to go, and they have the tiebreaker. So if they want to play home games in the first round of the playoffs, they can they can go a long way towards that by how they play this weekend down in Florida. Yeah, that's the biggest thing I'm focusing on as well is can you get that level of separation for home fields? Because like two weeks ago, the biggest debate I was having on the show and mostly kicking around in my own head was, well, if you have to choose in that Baltimore series, would you prefer home field or to line up your rotation optimally for the wild card series? If you can do both by putting a dent in Tampa here, uh, you're way ahead of the game. Dan Schulman, you're not on the call this weekend. I hope you have a, a good weekend off. And I know that Friday night, you'll probably have Apple TV Plus on one screen. I assume the palatial Schulman estate has multiple screens, by the way. Apple TV Plus on one, Jay's on another, and your Friday night SmackDown on another, the rare Friday you can watch your wrestling live. Uh, it might also be date night, though. We must have ah. priorities. We must have priorities, especially when we're leaving for the whole month of October for the playoffs. <laughs> so there will be screens going on, but uh, we, we might sit out in the backyard and have a glass of wine too for a while. That sounds lovely. Uh, Dan, yeah. hope you have a great weekend. <laughs> Thanks. You too, Blake. Dan Schulman of Sportsnet. It's uh, Buck and Pat on the call this weekend, but Dan will be back in the saddle Monday for that Yankee series. Um, by the way, tonight's game is another early start, 640, a week of earlier Weeknight starts, sure. Uh, 6.40, it's Ben Wagner on the call for you from down in Tampa Bay. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to kick around the question. Who is the Jays' MVP this season? Caitlin McGrath wrote about it at The Athletic today. She joins us next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590, The Fan. Starting Monday, be sure to tune into the J.D. Bunkus podcast weekday mornings at nine on Sportsnet 590 The Fan or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is Grand Theft Autumn. Happy Autumn. It's the start of fall. The start of fall means things like getting ready for the Major League Baseball playoffs and reflecting on things like who's been the Jays' most valuable player this year. Kayla McGrath of The Athletic wrote about exactly that today. Who is the Jays' MVP this season? Up at The Athletic now, Caitlin joins us. Caitlin, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm glad to hear you're doing well. Um What's going on? How, how how are you doing? How uh, how have you been? Yeah, no, it's it's been a, a, a rough week, I guess, for me. Um, but I'm feeling a lot better. I've recovered from my illness. Um, I, I would love to be in Tampa right now, but I'm not. I'm still at home, but I will be back around the team on Monday. I joked that I will show up to the Rogers Center at like 9 a.m., <laughs> even though the game's at 7 because I've just been so bored at home. Um, so I'm ready to go. 
Awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear you're feeling better. Um, you are obviously most valuable uh, person on the Jays beat, and, and you know who needs the humidity in Tampa, really. But we're we're we've been missing your coverage. So uh, glad you're feeling better today. You got back into action, put up a piece. Who is the Jays MVP this season? Up at the Athletic. Um, spoil it for us. Who is the Jays MVP this season? Before we before we get into debating some of it, uh, hit me with it. Well, I guess I didn't definitively say who I thought it was. I said who I would vote for, which was Alec Manoa. Uh, but I kind of laid out, I guess, the case for uh, a couple maybe leading candidates. Um, Alec Manoa leading the way in that regard, in my opinion, but also Ross Ripley and Kevin Gosman, I think. Also, a few honorable mentions. You can go down the lineup a little bit, but, you know, Vlad, Bo, I think get a mention. Uh, Matt Chapman, I think, is kind of overlooked. Um, and obviously Alejandro Kirk. Oh, and Jordan Romano, I've got uh, about him up there where I think he probably would get some votes. But, you know, ultimately it came down to Alec Manoa. But I could be persuaded and I could, you know, debate each one's case because I think all of them on the list have a case for it. That's a handful of good options. It's almost like this team is 19 games above 500 and in the top wildcard spot right now or something. Um, so let's get into some of those options. I, I looked at the leaderboard. If we were to just go pure wins above replacement, uh, mm-hmm. fan graphs would have it. Gosman, Bichette, Chapman, Kirk, Manoa. Mm-hmm. Baseball reference would have it. Manoa, Kirk, Vlad, Chapman Springer obviously Gosman is the big Gosman and Manoa are the big like well do you credit a pitcher for what the actual results were or what they quote-unquote should have been Um, Mm -hmm. when it comes to something like a team MVP or the Cy Young or something like that where do you fall on that where Manoa you know, has the better ERA, has given you more innings with with fewer runs allowed. But Gosman has, you know, I don't know, I don't know if justice is the word, but in terms of strikeouts, walks, home runs, the things a pitcher can most control, he has been elite in those regards. And maybe some of the misfortune isn't his fault. How do you weigh those two things if you were considering something like this? Yeah, I think honestly, like me personally, I, I almost have a hard time deciding between um, Gosman and Manoa because of the things that Gosman does so well. Those are things that you feel good about relying on, especially in the postseason. He strikes a lot of guys out. Um, He doesn't issue walks and he doesn't allow a lot of home runs. In fact, I think he's lost 14 home runs this season in total. Um, And like half of those came in the last uh, three, three or four starts that he had prior to yesterday so they all came in like bunches there was a couple games where he allowed two which was like very um uncommon for him so it was a bit of an anomaly i think and in general he doesn't allow home runs at all really this year so i i kind of initially was almost leaning towards him because i think he's kind of just had one of those weird unlucky years where we're not appreciating like how good he's been but then like you have to give credit to in manoa about Manoa just really doesn't even have, like, bad starts. I mean, the thing with Kevin Gosman, there's been a few where he's, you know, really just not been not been effective, and he's come out early in the games. Um, sometimes not his fault, just balls are dropping, but whatever. But Manoa, I just feel like he's got that presence about him lately, especially where he just feels, you feel so good relying on him to the point where, like, I do think it's a, 
a toss-up who will get maybe like game one of a postseason series or maybe whatever the most crucial game is you want to win. I think it's a toss-up who gets it between those two. But, yeah, I lead Manoa just because of, you know, the innings load, the sort of like swagger, the intangibles that he has as well. But I do think they're very close in terms of like just skills as pitchers and talents as pitchers. For sure. And I I don't think, you know, if someone wanted Manoa Gosman or Gosman Manoa 1-2, I wouldn't argue with either one. You can make a good case. But I I tend to side with you in this kind of backward-looking reflection where Manoa giving you 183 and two-thirds innings so far, which, by the way, is eighth in all of baseball and I think second in the American League behind only Mm -hmm. Framber Valdez. Um, It's pretty remarkable in this day and age. And if we're talking about the V and MVP valuable for a team that struggled for so much of the season to have that reliable starting pitching that could go deep, that's had a bullpen that at times has been overworked. Manoa doing that has been huge. And you mentioned that he doesn't have bad starts. I pulled his game logs and I used baseball references game score, which it weights every start from zero to hundred where 50 is average. Alec Manoa only had four starts this year that were below average, and none of those were below, like, 40th percentile starts. So he basically had no bad starts. He just had a couple of, well, that was a little below average starts. Um, so I think, you know, to your point, that's a that's a really big nod in his favor. Um, and then I, I liked the case you laid out for Ross Stripling where, man, where would this team be without Ross Stripling stepping in for Kikuchi and Ryu the way that he did? Uh, and then I was thinking about it. And I was like, okay, but if Manoa was out, then you'd have Stripling in that spot anyway. And then you'd be even more of a disaster at the back end. Um, but Stripling certainly deserving of credit. How do you feel about just the position player side? Because we mentioned a couple names there. Um, your Chapman, Vlad, Kirk, Springer, Bo now in the conversation because he carried the offense for such a long stretch. Um, I guess having that many options we can throw out there kind of just speaks to the depth of this group on the, the position player side. Yeah, and, you know, I do, I would hear an argument for just giving it to a position player in general because they do play every day where, a starter, for example, is only making a start every fifth day. So while like a guy like Manoa has carried a huge innings limit uh, or innings load, I should say, uh, he's not playing every day. Whereas like a guy like Bo and Vlad, for example, like they've basically played every day. I think Vlad's missed one game, and I think Bo's missed two or three. Um, and they're you know Bo, for example, starting at a demanding position. Matt Chapman plays a ton as well, pretty demanding position as well. Um, and so I do give a lot of credit to the everyday players um, because they're playing every single day and they're doing it on offense and defense uh, as well. And so I do think that the thing that uh, stood out, I guess, this year in contrast to last is like last year it was just so obviously Vlad's team. And it was he was just he was the, almost the MVP of the entire uh, league. So clearly he was the team's MVP and he just really carried them basically the entire season. Um, and even his dips last year were like, you know, you barely notice them sometimes. And uh, and so this year it hasn't, I, uh, at least my feeling has been, it hasn't been so obviously one position player doing it all year long. It has felt like guys have stepped up in moments when you needed them, like Matt Chapman, for example. Like he has been a bit streaky this year, but in the second half he's looked really good. He had a really good stretch, I guess, in like July where he looked really good. August he was quite good. Uh, he started this month not, so well 
or he's had a, a few down periods lately, but he's looking good again. So uh, then you have like Bo, who's really carried them in September. I think Vlad, uh, well, not as noticeable because we know like that his peak is so amazing, but he has at points carried this team as well. He's still one of the leaders in hits and RBI and home runs, um, not only on the team, but still in the top 10 in the American league. And so, yeah. And then there's like Kirk, right? Like where would they have been without Kirk in May and June when he was just like their best hitter full stop. And then he got, got himself to the all-star game. So I think that what stood out to me on the position player side is just, it hasn't been one guy throughout, but there has been times where some of those core guys and maybe some ex- unexpected guys like Kirk, for example, has just carried the offense for a while. So that's why they each kind of get an honorable mention, but I'm not sure that any of them have had the season, the steadiness throughout the entire season where they're a the clear MVP the way that Alec Manoa, as he kind of laid out, has been yeah I, I think I agree with with the bulk of that and it's it's well laid out and it's also a testament to um, you know how good the team's been on that side that you can make a case for a number of different guys and that's you know we didn't even mention Teos Hernandez Lourdes Gurriel Jr. the guys who are you know potentially in a playoff series big bats you're relying on as well um, I wanted to ask you Caitlin this is something that you know, you have a better handle on being close to the team every day than the numbers can maybe grasp. And it's not something we can generally quantify. But when we look through some of these names, and this is not meant to put down the the leadership or influence of anyone else, but it has seemed, and you and I have talked about this before, that over the course of the season, Matt Chapman has taken on kind of a bigger voice and a bigger leadership role with this team. And then we've seen... You know, we can't really do win-loss record with and without a player. It's not particularly fair, but the team sure is a lot better when George Springer is around. Um, how much do you factor in or, or just, you know, in reflecting on the year, how big a factor have the veteran presence of Chapman and Springer been for this team? No, I think it's huge, and I think we won't even know the full extent of it until we see them in the postseason. And obviously, both of them have extensive postseason experience and history uh, George Springer in particular with so many years with the Astros and then Matt Chapman as well with the A's like they had a lot of good teams there for a while um, you know he's definitely had that wild card experience even though it's a different setup this year with like a series as opposed to just the one game but um, I think that that's when you'll see that leadership really shine through but yeah I agree like they're both you know not the loudest guys necessarily but I think they've both taken on you know opportunities throughout this year to uh, be a leader, speak to the team, you know, when they have those meetings, clubhouse, closed clubhouse meetings type thing, I think they've both spoken up. I know Matt Chapman's really big on like, you know, celebrating the wins. And I know he's really big on like, just being very, like a being a big supportive teammate, I think, letting guys know when they do things well. You'll, you'll always see him often going up to the mound and talking to the pitcher sometimes. Even when I was watching the game yesterday and like, Adam Simber was walking off the mound, obviously after the loss. Like I noticed that Chapman like went up to him and like, you know, patted him on the back or whatever. And so that's, that what sticks out to me with Chapman and, you know, George is the same. They're both really good teammates, but yeah, I think the leadership presence is really going to start to shine or you're going to see guys lean on them when it comes to the postseason. where, you know, this is not a team that has a ton of postseason experience up and down the roster, uh, but those two guys do have it, and they're going to be relied upon, I think, as we get to those big, meaningful games. Caitlin, I want to ask you about another name you mentioned early, and maybe it's not the right day to talk about him in the MVP conversation, given that uh, he's had a, a couple of iffier 
outings the the last few times out, um, giving up three over an inning on Sunday, and then uh, last night with the blown save, even though it was an inherited runner. Uh, Jordan Romano has been very, very good all year. 229 ERA, 34 saves in 40 save opportunities. Um, does this two-game blip here concern you at all, coming off of like 100 games in a row without an earned run at all? And I guess more specifically, up until last night, he had gone five consecutive outings and I think nine of the last 10 where he threw his slider more than 50% of the time. Um, What do you make of him relying on the slider so heavily? And is that at all related to the little bit of a blip here? Yeah. I mean, yesterday was weird and I was like watching it on TV and I did notice the broadcast was talking about maybe like the ball, not guys, not gripping the ball as well. You probably kind of noticed that on Simber. Um, I know he's prone to hit some guys, but it's just, he seemed particularly wild um, with his pitches and Romano as well seemed pretty wild um, with both the fastball and the slider a little bit. Um, But yeah, I mean, you look at how Jordan's done this season and you have to just kind of accept that no reliever, even the best of them um, are going to be perfect all the time. Is it unfortunate that they've happened in two kind of, somewhat meaningful games and that, you know, you're trying to close out a team for a sweep. Yeah. Like that's bad timing, but you look at the number of times that Jordan Romano has been able to get out of those messes and more often than not, he is able to get out of them. So the slider usage is, is interesting. Obviously it's been a really good pitch for him this season. He's improved upon it. It's been working for, for him. And he almost is like a 50, 50, like fastball slider guy. He obviously had a plan up there against Schwarber. I saw, I think Chris Black, you know, tweeted something afterwards about how Schwarber's hitting the, the slider really well lately. And it's like, maybe that wasn't the best plan, but I mean, you also have to kind of just like give the pitcher credit. Cause it's like, he kind of knows himself well and he knows what he's been doing. It's obviously been working for him, but yeah, maybe it is now time to readjust a little bit. He, he maybe he felt earlier on, he was using the fastball too much. And so he's going to the slider cause he's feeling good with it. And then now, now maybe it is t- that point where you're always playing that cat and mouse game where you're readjusting to how, hitters are adjusting to you. So maybe it is about, you know, throwing the fastball more or like getting ahead of guys with the fastball and then trying to get them swinging at a slider out of the zone or something like that. And so I have faith that, you know, the Blue Jays, Jordan Romano, uh, Matt Bushman, Pete Walker, all every, the brain trust of the Blue Jays will be able to come up with a solution. Um, but yeah, I mean, overall his season has been great. He's going to go down as, you know, it's, it's going to go down as one of the best closer seasons um, in Blue Jays history, honestly. And I think that when it comes to playoff time, he's going to be ready. He's probably going to be like the vintage Jordan Romano that we've gotten used to seeing this year. Yeah, and the, the pitch mix stuff is interesting from a process perspective, but it's not like his slider has suddenly started getting teed off on or anything. It's mostly just a curiosity. How do you, like it's a, it's like you laid out, it's a fascinating thing. It, it's really fascinating with Ross Stripling when he throws five different pitches to a couple different spots and you're like, huh, how do you sequence those? That's a really, you, like you have a million options. How do you choose? And then with Jordan Romano, it's like, okay, okay, well, you're just, these are two 50-50 pitches. How do you sequence those best to trick a guy? Because he thinks he's got a 50-50 chance at guessing. Um, so you almost have to maybe like randomize it sometimes just to, to keep him off balance. Um, Kayla McGrath. But, oh, I, I wanted to ask you um, one more. Sorry. Um, I was about to let you go, but I'm going to take up even more of your time. We just kind of did a backward looking who's been the most important, who's been the most valuable um, to date. If you're looking ahead to the postseason, 
Who do you think that needs to be for the Jays to make a run here? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think in those instances, you look at your best. And so it's probably someone like uh, George Springer or Vlad, uh, I would say, in terms of position players. I think, you know, you want your best from the starting pitchers as well. Uh, I think it's Vlad, honestly. Like, if we're seeing signs from him kind of coming out of it, he had the home run yesterday, he's hitting the balls harder up in the air finally. So if he's, if he's unlocking something, maybe this is good timing for it to happen to so, so that he's in a zone in the playoffs. But I also think that, like, I always imagine, and I haven't actually, like, really covered a lengthy postseason run here, but it always feels like there's, like, one of those guys that just, like, comes out and has, like, a hero game and, like, so I don't know. Like I'm putting my money right now on Ryan Tapia having just like a crazy <laughs> game, going like four for four in one game, or just like coming up clutch because he's been in. Like, he's kind of been the guy that's been in some big moments this year. And you know, I think we remember the times he comes through, and then don't remember the times he doesn't come through. So in our minds, it's like he always comes through. But um, I think the numbers are pretty favorable to him actually being pretty good with like runners in scoring position and high leverage moments and all that kind of stuff. So. I'm kind of, that's my, I'm putting him, uh, he's my pick, I guess, my like postseason folk hero, like guy that comes out of nowhere. But um, yeah, I think if you're looking for like, who's going to stand out, who the J's need like to be good, it's, I would say probably Vlad. And I would also lean George Springer as well, just that experience thing. But if we're talking about like guy who like suddenly becomes a hero in Toronto and like never has to like buy a meal again, it's going to be Ryan Tapia. I like that pick. Um, you know, I still have a running joke with a, a friend about the cult of Rajai Davis, um, not from Jay's time, but from earlier in his career. And then that during Cleveland's uh, trek mm-hmm. to the, the World Series there, uh, he went five for 34 and every one of the hits was just like massive. Uh, that that could absolutely be a Ryan Maltapia, five for 34, but every hit wins a game or something like that. Uh, Caitlin McGrath, thank you so much for taking the time out. Glad you're feeling better. Uh, really nice to talk to you again. Of course. Thank you. Anytime. Caitlin McGrath of The Athletic. You can go read more on this topic at The Athletic. Who is the Jays MVP this season? Uh, Caitlin wrote about a number of candidates and hey, Send us yours. Uh, let us know at 590-590 who you think, or, or we can save that for tomorrow because we have two more guests coming up. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to talk to Mike Petriello of MLB.com. We're going to talk to him about a handful of things. We're going to get statsy as we always do with Mike. The big question, though, have the numbers come around on Matt Chapman's defense because the eye test has always been there. The comments from broadcasters and teammates and former players on social media are all there. Is the spreadsheet ready to recrown Matt Chapman, an elite, elite third baseman by numbers, even if I think we can all agree he is regardless of what they say. Uh, Mike Petriello joins us next on Jay's Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. A little bit of news as we continue to look ahead to the playoffs. The Jays have changed when the postseason tickets are going on sale to the general public. Uh, It's now Wednesday at 10 a.m. next week instead of Tuesday. So you got to wait an extra 24 hours. But hey, maybe you'll have a little bit more certainty about what that division race looks like, about what their push for home field looks like uh let's zoom out a little bit see what the national 
take on, oh my goodness, sorry. Sorry to Mike Petriello. We're going to bring him on in a second, but uh, the Yankees just activated Zach Britton. Uh, I imagine that's the first time he's been activated since the 2016 wildcard game where he just sat in the visitors bullpen forever and ever and ever and wasn't used. Um, Got to get that in. Uh, we're joined now by Mike Petriello of MLB.com. Mike, how are you, man? Hey, I'm doing great, Blake. Did you know the Blue Jays have a minor league infielder named Zach Britton who is also not going to be activated for the wildcard game? Catcher slash outfielder who's headed to Arizona Fall League. At your outfielder. How could I have gotten that one wrong? Unbelievable, man. You don't, your, your Zach's Britain, your Zachary's Britain are, uh, are all mixed up. The, the big question is, is he going to use an H or a K or is he going to switch it up on us mid career as the other Zach Britain did? Uh, you know, he should go with like a Zach wild, like a Z K K kind of look. That would be pretty cool. That would be all right. Speaking of music, did you hear what I played you in with, by the way? Oh, of course. Expert in the dying field of the Beth. So like yes. That. Yes. How do you, how are you liking the new album? Um, I'm liking it quite a bit. I don't know that there's any singles that grab me as much as the previous two records had, but I, I feel like I'm going to listen to it 15 more times and then totally change my mind on that. Yeah, I probably will as well. I, I was having a conversation uh, with a friend the other day about it over email. It's a, it's an American friend who like our, our entire correspondence at this point is just talking about uh, albums. And yeah, we've, ch he's changed his favorite track off of it a bunch of times as of I, which to me is usually the sign of a, of a pretty good album when you can't settle on what the track ordering is. Um, Mike, let's talk some baseball. Huge change in the history of baseball last night. Kevin Gosman's BABIP craters from 365 all the way down to 364. Uh, his lead for the highest BABIP of all time is now a little thinner. What the heck is going on there, man? As pointed out to me, he's one of three Kevins in the top seven of that list, along with wow. Kevin Brown and Kevin Millwood. I don't think that actually uh, has any correlation. No, it's it's weird, right? And... Part of it is very simple. Part of it is the Blue Jays play very bad defense behind him. So if you were to look at outs above average, which is the stack cast metric just behind him, minus nine, which is the fourth worst in baseball. And you might look at that and say, okay, it's just a bad defense. That's what's happening to Patrick Corbin, for example. He's getting killed by the Washington defense, but the Washington defense is just bad. But that's not actually true for the Blue Jays. Like They're actually pretty decent behind everybody else. So it's like highly specific to him. And I think it was pretty well declared earlier in the season that he was the one who was like, you guys got to stop shifting behind me so much. Like, this is absolutely killing me. And they've stopped. And I'm, I'm sure that's part of it. I'm sure some of it's just bad luck. It, some of it's the contact he's giving up. But it's it's weird, you know? And I was watching the Phillies game last night, and it, it looked a lot better, I can tell you that. So when they catch the ball behind him, uh, this is like an ace-quality pitcher you got here. It sure is. And, you know, the, the shifting thing is interesting. And we were tweeting about it last night, you and I and Chris Black. 69.9% um, of pitches he threw had infield shifts behind him prior to his June 22nd start. And from that start onward, it's been 28.5%. As we'd expect, though, the gap between his actual results and his expected results has been more extreme in non-shift situations. The shifts weren't, they felt like they weren't working a ton early in the year because he was getting bled a lot on, on balls in play. But that actually got more extreme since then because they're not shifting behind him. Um, I guess with shifting stuff, there's an element of just your pitcher's comfort level uh, as well. Um, 
do we need to look into, and maybe this is less of a, an issue when there's no, uh, when there are less extreme shifts next year, um, but maybe it's even more of an issue then. Um, some sort of, I know we have expected batting average on StatCast. Um, do we have to ask the old baseball savant crew to add in an expected batting average on balls in play uh, that takes out the the swing and miss, the, the walks, the home runs, and just gives us, hey, neutral fielding, what should we expect there? That way we could, I, I tried like a back of envelope pass at it and Gosman was about 30 to 35 points off expectation. Um, at least then we would be able to say like, yeah, Kevin Gosman deserved a higher than average batting average on balls in play, but not this extreme. Yeah, I think that's right. I actually think the Blue Jays have maybe overcorrected a little bit against mm-hmm. right-handed batters. So like earlier in the year, the first month of the season, they were shifting against right-handed batters about 75% of the time, which is a wild number. Like it's it's almost obscene. Like nobody does it that much. And I think they quickly figured out, you know, this is probably too much. Um, obviously, they had a managerial change in there. Gosman was probably not that happy about it. And so in May and June, it was down to like 55%, still kind of high, but, you know, much better. And then July and August is down to about 30%, which feels like about right and this month it's down to 15 percent. and now i'm starting to wonder is like did you guys go too far because they've kind of allowed a higher batting average on balls and play on on grounders to righties this month than they had before which sort of makes me wonder like wait maybe maybe you still want to do this a little <laughs> but not like as insanely much as you were doing before so when we look at the Jays shifting and and chris black and joe siddle and i had a conversation about this on tuesday using the Adley Rutschman bases loaded hit against the shift as kind of a talking point for it of how you might need to adjust that strategy for specific situations. Can hitters beat the shift more when, you know, their attention is completely dialed in and it's a big spot? Um, I don't know. We'd have to look at that a little bit more. But when we look at the effect that shifting has in general and the effect that it has on pitchers. Um, I know that you, you tweeted out, you know, Saris's piece from the athletic today on, you know, trying to quantify who this stuff is going to affect the most and the least Um, mostly focused on the hitter side of things though. What do you make of a team like the blue Jays that has shifted a ton this year and gotten a lot of defensive value out of shifts this year as we head into a season where shifts will have to be a little less aggressive i mean the shift ban i even hate to say that because it's not really a shift i'm wording it carefully yeah well it's an aesthetic change right like really that there's just two things you can't do you can't have a four-man outfield which i know the blue jays have actually done a decent amount of but i don't think most fans would sweat the loss of that and you can't have an infield where there's just one player on like the left side of the infield, right? You could still do shifts. You can move your outfielders around. You can position within the new rules as much as you want. It's really, as Eno wrote, it's not going to change that much. And some of us have been kind of saying this for years, and I feel like it hasn't quite gotten through. I was was watching a game last night, not the Blue Jays game, and I won't say which one, where the broadcasters were like, this is great. It's going to bring life back to left-handed hitters. It's going to change their lives. And it's like, eh, will it? (laughs) Not actually sure it's going to change that much. So I think the Blue Jays are going to continue to do what they're doing. I mean, take your fielders, position them in the best place you can to catch balls uh, within the confines of the rules. I mean, the only way you're ever going to change that is to do something that I don't think any fan actually wants, which is to paint seven dots on the field and say, (laughs) here is where you must stand. I don't think anybody actually wants that. But if you don't do that, then you're going to see guys being well positioned, whether it's a full overshift or not. 
Yeah, I certainly don't want the uh, the seven spots painted on the field. Uh, we might have to get to there's like that little like three point arc painted behind the outfield or behind the infield dirt because you know as Jason Stark has written about, not all the infield dirts are are equal. Um, you know, I remember the old. I think it was the Metrodome. Like they didn't have any infield dirt, so they just had to paint it on. Um, by the way, Mike, a small piece of news. I, I mentioned the Zach Britton thing tongue in cheek on the way in, uh, but Julio Rodriguez just left the game. Uh, with the trainer. So that's a, no. a little bit more significant. Um, see, I don't have the the details of it. Just seeing tweets that he has left that game. So that is uh, not great uh, as a fan of baseball, or if you are a Seattle Mariners fan, um, that's in the first inning of that one. So not optimal there. Um, okay. How do we, how do we pivot off of that? Uh, I have one more Gosman one for you, Mike. Um, also within that Eno piece, he tried to look at the bit, the larger bases and how it might affect stolen bases and stolen base attempts. He kind of tiered runners into three types. Uh, but the most interesting one of those for me from a Blue Jays perspective was that Kevin Gosman was on his list of guys who could be most negatively affected for that because he is fairly slow to the plate. Um, the Jays have two catchers in Alejandro Kirk and Danny Jansen, who in Kirk's case has really good metrics in Jansen's case has a really good reputation. Um, are we going to have to tweak how we evaluate catcher defense to account for that kind of change moving forward? Oh, I'm kind of really glad you brought that up. Um, I, I don't have the actual numbers to support this. So you're just going to have to believe that it's true. One of the things that I want to roll out on the site over the winter is a, is a catcher metric that kind of gets to exactly that because for the entire history of baseball, I think everyone has known that stolen bases are stolen off the pitcher. Really, mm -hmm. you know, we look at that stealing percentage for catchers and it's fine, but it's really unfair if you're talking about, well, you know, Byron Buxton stole a base on me or Albert Bujol stole a base on me. Like, that's a massively different thing. So, oh, we're going to roll out. Like, what catchers are, are in good or bad positions by their pitchers in terms of leads allowed and time to play and all this. And this is in front of me. But Alejandro Kirk shows up as being put into really good situations by his pitchers, which I found really interesting. Hmm. And so what we can do from there is break it down by what pitcher, which pitcher is putting him in a good spot which pitcher's not. Um, but it's it's interesting to see. Like I think Kirk does a good job, but it also seems like his pitchers are setting him up to succeed there. And something like that is going to come in really useful to catch exactly what you're talking about, which is next year, right? How do we account for different bases and everything? So that's going to have to be included as well. And we're going to have to, uh, I mean, we're going to have to bring this term back more anyway if he's on the, the active roster all year next year and playing and not just sitting in this third catcher spot he has been lately. We got to bring pop time back for Gabriel Moreno. Uh, we got to we got to reemphasize that, that 1.92 pop time. Um, in terms of Kirk and Jansen, though, what I know that that's one component of it, um, certainly. And Gosman could explain a lot of that being one of the, the more deliberate and slower guys to the plate uh, in baseball and how Jansen and Kirk split those up. But heading into the postseason for the Jays, you know, Jansen does have more of the reputation and the, oh, he calls a great game stuff, whereas Kirk has framing and blocking numbers in his favor. Um, obviously that's a luxury to have two catchers like that. Now that Danny Jansen's tearing the cover off the ball as well. Um, maybe that resolves some of it, but how would you be deploying Kirk and Jansen? Um, if you're the blue Jays heading into a playoff series. 
Well, I'm probably putting them both in the lineup. Yes. One's, one's going to be my DH most likely. The first thing I would do is I honestly wouldn't look at numbers if they're both going to be hitting. I would look at who my starting pitcher is. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know offhand if anybody's got a personal catcher situation where I feel more comfortable with this guy or not. Obviously, you want to set up your pitcher to succeed in the postseason more than anything else. And as much as I hate to say it, I'm not sure on a on a one-game basis there's going to be that big of a difference between the two behind the plate. You know, this Mm -hmm. isn't going from like, I don't know, Kevin Ploiecki to Yair Molina or something (laughs) like that. No disrespect to Kevin Ploiecki. He just can't throw anybody out ever. Um, I I just, I'm not sure it's going to matter that much. So I would probably defer to, well, okay, who's my opponent and who's my pitcher? Cause that's, that's definitely going to factor into all that. Yeah. And I think that that is a a fair way to do it. You know, Kirk has been the Manoa guy more often than not. So maybe it's as simple as Kirk catches the Manoa start in a wildcard series. Jansen catches the other two and they flip DH. Um, Maybe it's as simple as that. And then, you know, keeping Gabriel Moreno on the roster, on the playoff roster as a third catcher, just in case. And for pinch run and stuff like that uh, becomes interesting as well. I want to flip it to infield defense here with you uh gotta ask matt chapman we obviously had that lengthy discussion and you dove in deep and came up with some great examples and showed why maybe the defensive metrics don't love matt chapman as much this year as prior years and most of that came down to throwing and some occasional double clutching and things like that um matt chapman seems to just get better and better and smoother and smoother. There was that amazing highlight last night as well um, that I think Brandon McCarthy retweeted in between retweets of Detroiters memes. Um, Matt Chapman has have the numbers kind of, I guess for lack of a better phrasing caught up to the eye test or is that, is there still that little bit of disparity there for Chapman? Well, the the honest answer to this is that's a difficult question to answer without taking a few minutes to dig into all the data behind it. Okay. It looks at the moment. Well, like I apologize. Then. Still, Yeah, no, no all good. He, but I'm going to do like the real professional uh, baseball person thing and answer the question I wish you had asked instead of the question that uh, you did ask because I think it's I think it's relevant. Um, I was noticing that the, the Blue Jays defense in August was actually kind of terrible. It was the second worst. And in September, it is the second best, which I think is really interesting and part of that is that jackie bradley's been great and part of it's that vlad was weirdly not great in august um the part of it's the left side of the infield right and part of it's that bobichet's fielding has sort of mirrored his hitting in the sense that he's been red hot at the plate and also really good at the uh, on defense and one theory i have and i was talking to chris about this before but i haven't actually been able to back it up yet is that because they're shifting less often against right-handed batters um, if you if you look at where Bichette is good, it's like the normal shortstop hole and to his left. So like closer to second base or, you know, shifted on the right side of second base is really not good closer to third. So I'm kind of wondering is with less shifts, does that mean that the balls that he maybe couldn't get to before are now being sucked up by Matt Chapman? Hmm. And I think that would be kind of a win all around. I mean, I, I, I understand the metrics don't look great. I also understand the eye test does look great. You know, so we got to sort that out. But I think that would be interesting if that's what's happening. Yeah. And we'd have to dig in a little bit more, but I think that makes sense. And it's kind of what you and I had talked about before in terms of it's, it's almost the inverse of, you know, we were trying to capture, well, is there like a little bit of a, 
high tide rises all boats and it's hard to assign credit based on, you know, Bo can play a little differently with Chapman next to him and things like that. Uh, I think the important thing, of course, is just that the team defense uh, gets to the right level. Um, curious, this isn't a Jays question, and I, I don't know if you've thought about this. I don't even know if, if this is something media votes on our league awards, but um, I was looking at the leaders in outs above average recently, and it, it came, it occurred to me that, there were not a lot of um, obvious standouts in the American League in terms of who might win the platinum glove, like who might be the defensive player of the year. I know Jonathan Scope has the highest outs above average, but I kind of have a hard time seeing a Tigers guy getting it given the year that they've had over, say, an Andres Jimenez who's done it in a breakout season for a, a contending team. Well, I think you are 100% right. It's not going to be Jonathan Scope. <laughs> I don't <laughs> think that's a very, I don't think that's a controversial opinion to take. I've I've looked into him a couple of times and I, it doesn't make sense to me. And you know, I can't <laughs> find any compelling reason to prove that it's wrong. Um, but, you know, you're, you're right. I hadn't noticed it until you pointed it out. Like the National League is kind of killing in all of these. And, you know, if you look at some of the other metrics, it's like, is it Stephen Kwan? Maybe? I mean, hmm. is it? Is it Michael uh, Miles Straw or Jeremy Pena? That's it's interesting because there's not like a compelling answer in the way that they're pretty clearly might be in the National League. I don't think I hate to burst everyone's bubble. I don't think it's going to be a Blue Jay though. No, no, I I think it'll be Andres Jimenez. Like I I think I know he got the All Star nod and everything, but I kind of in years like this, and this is more of a basketball thinking than, than baseball thinking, I guess, but um, where a guy's had a really nice breakout year and you want to award him for something, but there's no like most improved player in baseball. It's like, oh, well, he's hit really well, but he's also a good defender. So we'll throw him, uh, we'll throw him the platinum glove. But I don't know if, uh, if people think that way uh, in baseball as well. We'll have to see. Um, Mike, on the offensive side, the Jays rank near the top in just about, every category that we can measure offense in and just about any split, um, you know, they're at least top 10 in just about all of them. And sometimes even higher the one that stands out to me a lot. And I'm curious as to your opinion on how much it matters in the postseason, if it matters more or matters less um, the production, the Jays have got from the seven, eight, nine spots in their order is way higher than any other team. Now that, one through nine depth and no holes in the order is nice. Um, but sometimes I, I go back and forth on whether that's better or you'd rather just have a couple of guys who just absolutely mash and could carry an offense. Um, when you get into the playoffs and teams are a little more careful with who they pitch um, to, who they pitch with, and the samples are so small, which way do you lean on that? A, a one to nine or a more top heavy group having a little bit of an edge? I think I lead. Well, I'm going to split the difference here. Oh, a one to nine, as long as one or two of those guys are really good, which the Blue Jays have. Yeah. Right? I know Vlad hasn't had the season people want him to have, but he's still having a very good year. Springer and Bichette can be those guys. Obviously, Chapman's having a really good year. So I wouldn't look at it as an evenly distributed one to nine. You know, you still got some stars up there. But the way I think about it is like this. And people, I think, forget about this every single year. Offense goes down in October every single year. Right. And it's never hard to understand why it's colder for one thing. Uh, but, you know, the 20 worst pitching staffs for the most part go home and the best pitching staffs only use their best pitchers more. So it's no surprise that offense gets harder. <laughs> and when that happens, like if you kind of lower the floor for everybody, I think about a team like Cleveland, right, where 
I, not a great offense overall, but I kind of like their top five or six guys. And then the bottom third there is just a wreck. It's like really bad right now. And when, when you make things harder on them, that is going to be almost unplayable. They're going to be giving away essentially three of the nine innings with their seven, eight, nine. And they don't have, I mean, Jose Ramirez is an MVP candidate, but they don't necessarily have the big bats to overcome that. And if you're the Blue Jays, well, first of all, you're not giving that away. Like the bottom three aren't the top three, but they're pretty good. Like they're still going to be capable offensive players, even with the better pitching. And then obviously you still have Vlad Gomer Jr. who, you know, won the MVP last year. So <laughs> would I rather be the Jays or a team like Cleveland? Uh, the Jays. Good. That's that's the right answer when you're uh, you're on Toronto radio as well. Uh, let's uh, let's heal it up and go with the non-Toronto thing to close it out here, Mike. Um, why is Aaron Judge getting so many hittable pitches right now? <laughs> I was looking at this this morning, and it's not just that he's getting more pitches in the zone. Because, like, I get it. I, I'm not advocating for intentional walks. There's a level of cowardice here that you don't <laughs> want to be getting to. Um, but it's not just in the zone pitches. He has, as of this morning... Uh, in September, the fifth most middle middle fastballs. Come on, and it's like, it's like, it's one thing to you know pitch around him, but you're throwing him like pipe shot fastballs. What are we doing here? And like, I get it if you're, I don't know, Will Crow or um, Eric Stout, you know, one of these Pittsburgh guys. It's like you want to make a name for yourself. You want to tell your kids you challenged <laughs> Aaron Judge. You're trying to get him out. Like uh, you didn't want to walk him. Like I get it. Like even in games that don't like quote unquote matter, these are still extremely high level athletes who are competitive you know like you're not going to give away a plate appearance but also don't throw middle middle pipe shot fastballs that's the part i can't wrap my head around yeah that's a tough one and that's uh you know i would honestly understand it if it were albert pujols we were seeing this with like he is a very beloved figure and most of the young guys coming up now grew up watching him and he's going to play the pirates six times to end the season. If some of those guys are trying to groove him 700 so they could be a part of that highlight and a part of that moment. Absolutely understand it. Uh, Aaron judge against the divisional rival a little less. So um, Mike Petriello, thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Hope you enjoy the games this weekend. Hope you enjoy number 61, but not number 62. Cause selfishly I want it here in Toronto next week. I want it Sunday night because I'm going to be there for the game on Sunday night. So I want all the home runs on Sunday night in New York, selfishly for me. Unbelievable. Uh, Mike Petriello, thanks so much, man. Thanks, Blake. I was Mike Petriello of MLB.com. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll take a look at tonight's starting pitching matchup. I was going to... Uh, I'm going to save that pun. I don't know if it's going to work as ver well verbally as it does in text, but there's some good JT Chargois puns kicking around in my head. Uh, JT Chargois will be the opener for Tampa Bay tonight. He'll be followed, we think, by Ryan Yarbrough. Uh, we'll take a look at that. We'll take a look at Jose Barrios. We'll take a look at the lineups. And we'll talk to Robert Orr of Baseball Prospectus, who went deep on Bo Bichette's turnaround for Baseball Prospectus this week. Uh, Robert Orr joins us next on Jays Talk Plus on Sports at 590 The Fan. Everything you need to know about the Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Happy first day of fall. It's a hoodie day. Even JR is wearing a sweater. I guess a hockey sweater counts as well, Brett. Not as cozy as JR looks, but 
It is a great Kessel purple Arizona jersey. Jays, back in action. It's uh, officially fall baseball now. 640 tonight, Jays at Rays. Ben Wagner on the call for you on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Before we get the lineups of the pitching matchup, join now by Robert Orr of Baseball Prospectus. Robert, you claim to be a spreadsheet nerd, as I do. Got to know, what is your, like, highlight crowning spreadsheet moment? Oh, it's um, hmm. probably uh, something I've done for an article. Um, not probably... Uh, the, I wrote a piece in um, April with the Cardinals and uh, graphed their uh, their swing planes, mm. and that was probably the most interesting thing that I've been able to do there. Hell yeah, um, I I pretty sure I read that piece. Although sometimes the baseball prospectus stuff, uh, you guys all do such great work, and I can't read all of it. So um, sometimes it, it can get a little tough. Um, so you are. Robert, uh, a Phillies guy and the Jays and Phillies just played a pair of pretty weird games, some parallels between yeah. the teams. And they, uh, they decided to trade frustrating losses. Um, I guess the big question I have for you though, Matt Veerling five hit game with a walk-off, um, that Phillies team seemed incredibly happy for Veerling is Veerling becoming a bit of a like cult hero fan favorite in Philly. Um, yeah, because like he's a, he's a homegrown guy and he wasn't a high draft pick or anything. Kind of a, kind of a self-made guy who came out of nowhere last year in the minors and all of a sudden was having a really good year. And he's, he's had some struggles this year, but by all accounts, he's a great guy. Um, and he's, he's always willing to play wherever they need him to. So that endears him to a lot of people. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, last, that was his first walk off. So they were obviously super happy for him. Yeah, the versatility is is always great for for a bench piece. It's not important that you're good at one position. It's that you can be okay at a lot of them. Um, that's the the bench player's credo. Um, over at Baseball Prospectus this week, you wrote a piece about Bo Bichette, how Bo brought the power back. Um, I don't want to give everything away. People should go to Baseball Prospectus and read it. But at a high level, how did Bo bring the power back and – you know, I know the one thing you really focused in on, and it's a Boba Shet, you know, it's a huge thing when he's hitting well, is that kind of opposite field gap power that had evaded him for the early part of the season. Yeah, that's kind of what set him apart, right? Um, he's always been able to get extra base hits going that way, hit home runs that way. And uh, earlier this year, um, a lot of hitters were suffering because uh, the ball was not flying very far. <laughs> you may have heard about that. Um, and that's the type of hitter that would be affected the most by that. So um, he, I think he suffered. He lost some hits that way. And uh, he actually, I think he changed his approach a little bit. He's been a little bit more selective than he has for um, most of his career in the last couple months. And uh, it's benefited him. And also the weather's kind of heated up again so the ball's flying a little bit further and both of those things combined and that's how you get the uh the month of september that he's having you mentioned he's been a little bit more selective um obviously bo bichette even when he's going even when he's more selective he's still a pretty aggressive hitter you know that you mentioned in your article that uh his swing rate at stuff outside the zone has come down to league average from being well above it yeah. earlier um what does it say to you about Bo Bichette's 
skill level and specifically his swing mechanics that he can be a guy who swings at that much stuff outside of the zone and still be so effective using all fields? Um, it's it's a, probably what makes the aggressive approach work is his willingness to go at wherever the ball is pitched. Um, and when you have a hit tool as good as Bo Bichette's, like sometimes you see a ball that probably shouldn't swing at, but you know that you can, you can hit it. And uh, I think that's what happens with him. Um, and yeah, he, he's able to make it work by, you know, hitting doubles into the gap and not always looking to pull the ball like a lot of hitters do. Um, he's now up to fifth among shortstops in baseball and weighted runs created plus, which, um, you know, kind of adjust for some park factors and league factors and things like that. Um, and he's, Remarkably close to his 2021 marks in a couple different statistical categories. Uh, third among shortstops in isolated slugging right now. Um, what do you, you know, when you sit down, say, in the offseason to, to write some uh, some of the, the blurbs for Baseball Prospectus 2023, how, what do you, or how do you contextualize rather, um, you know, a guy who was pretty pedestrian most of the year and then took off or a guy who was really, really hot to start and then kind of became average from there because, you know, he's going to come out really, really strong in a lot of shortstop rankings. Um, do you believe that or, or is a guy who's a little more up and down uh, tougher to put in, say the top five offensive shortstops in baseball? Um, that's a good question because I'm I'm not entirely sure how I weight that. I think it makes a more interesting story when a guy has like a midseason change as, as dramatic as he does or as he's had. Um, but if you're going to compare to other shortstops, um, for a couple months of the season, he might be the best hitting one. And then <laughs> for a couple other months, he might be one of the worst ones that plays daily. But um even when he was down, though, he was still around a league average-ish hitter. It was just disappointing because you've seen him be so good. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how to weigh that up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more long-term then, Robert, um, when you look at a young-ish player like Bo Bichette figuring out how to get his way out of a valley like that, um, does that give you pretty good confidence in him that, you know, like – this wasn't a case of pitchers found a hole, exposed it, and then that was it for this guy. He's been able to figure that out and work on it on the fly. Um, does that improve your kind of long-term confidence in Bo Bichette being a high-end guy? Oh, for sure. Um, because he's, he's able to adjust to the adjustments that pitchers are um, making to him. Like, I think uh, when, when he wasn't going so well earlier in the season, he was chasing outside the zone a lot more than he had even – you know, for the rest of his career when he, he's already one of the most aggressive hitters in baseball. Um, and I think that might have been like him pressing a little bit, uh, pitchers noticing that and, you know, taking him further and further outside the zone. Uh, but when he's able to lay off of those and they have to come back to him, um, that's a big that's a big adjustment. And that's how you see breakouts like he's having. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I want to pivot to uh, another Blue Jay who – the story has kind of been similar to Bo Bichette earlier in the year where, 
still good, but has underwhelmed a little bit. Um, you know, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., his numbers on the season, he's still top 25 in WRC+, plus. but because of the season he had last year, um, it, it can feel like it's been a, a disappointing season. One of the things that stands out as I look at Vlad's stats and read your Bo Bichette piece is that Vlad has a career high chase rate swinging at those pitches outside of the zone. Do you think we can learn anything from what's gone on with Bo as it pertains to Vlad or are they too dissimilar as hitters? Um, yeah, you could probably, it's, I mean, it's a good recipe for success for a lot of guys, right? Don't, don't swing inside the zone, swing at pitchers' pitches. Um, and I know in the past, Vlad's problem has been um, a tendency to put the ball on the ground a little bit too much and not take advantage of the, the prodigious power that he has. And um, pitches outside the zone, um, like you think about like curveballs and sliders and change-ups that dive to below his knees. Those are the ones that get topped and, you know, he rolls over. Um, and his ground ball rate is up. Uh, from what it was last year, I believe. So um, it's it's a little different because um, I don't think Bo's problem necessarily was a lot of ground balls like Vlad's is. Um, but it is the same in that if he can stop expanding the zone, um, he, he might get back to what he was last year. Which would be great. I would I would love oh, yeah. for Vladimir Guerrero Jr. to get back uh, to what he was last year. Um, one more for you before we let you go here, Robert. Uh, I saw so I have MLB Network on in the in the studio while I'm doing this, and they flashed a graphic of the batting average leaders this month. And Bo Bichette is second, and he's hitting over 400. And then there's Aaron Judge, who's hitting 472 over the last 20 games with 11 <laughs> home runs. Uh, I know you wrote about this last week. Uh, big investigative piece. Aaron Judge, uh, unbelievably good. I only mention that um, because he is headed for a record-breaking or a record-tying home run and then potentially a record-breaking home run, at least in the American League and uh, Yankees history. Uh, just how special is the season Aaron Judge is having and honestly, just the close to the season that Aaron Judge is having right now. Yeah, it's it's insane. Um, it's the best offensive season anyone's had since Bonds, I think. And anytime you're you know invoking Barry Bonds' name, I mean, that's just the guy. It's video game numbers um, is what he's putting up. And the, the thing that is kind of crazy to me is um, in the first half, uh, he was already so good. It was like a 170 WRC plus or something like that. But um, I heard Eno Saris mention this um, on a podcast he's done that uh, Aaron Judge is the biggest improver from first half WRC plus to second half. <laughs> and that's after having like a 170 WRC plus in the first half. He got, He's just insane. He's, and he's on such a roll right now. It's, it's I haven't seen anything like it in a long time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You have to pretty much go back to Barry Bonds for the last time uh, we saw something like this. It, it's, it's always pretty incredible when a guy's this good and you can look at Bo Bichette's unbelievable last six weeks or so. It's like, yeah, 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 he's been like the best hitter in baseball, except for Aaron judge, who is like two standard deviations better than him over that stretch. Still. Yeah, uh, it's nuts. It's nuts. <laughs> Robert Orr of Baseball Prospectus. Great piece recently on Aaron Judge. Great piece on Bo Bichette this week. I really appreciate you taking the time out, man. Uh, thanks for having me. Robert Orr of Baseball Prospectus. Uh, you can give him a follow on Twitter as well at not the Bobby Orr.
because I'm sure if he shortens that name and goes by Bobby ever, he gets a lot of, uh, a lot of those jokes. He probably expected it coming on a Canadian radio station, honestly. Um, but go check out his great work at baseball prospectus. Let's take a look at tonight's line. First, by the way, actually, we have one text in the text line. Um, there, there were a couple texts in the text line today. We, we're not going to have time for uh, most of them. Maybe we'll get to more tomorrow. Um, but someone who didn't sign theirs asked when I was saying all the categories the Jays rank really highly in, um, are the Jays also number one in leaving runners on base and being the worst with bases loaded? Actually, the Jays are sixth in batting average with the bases loaded this year. Um, obviously, yesterday was very, very bad two late game situations with the bases loaded and one out and you didn't get a run in either of them. Those stand out, but sixth in batting average with the bases loaded Um, 12th in batting average with runners in scoring position. So they go from being very good to being average ish. That's why it can feel pretty extreme. Also those situations always feel extreme. I, I would bet that of the 30 teams, like, 20 of them think their team is really bad in those situations. And then the other 10 are either delusional or uh, checked out on the season already. So um, those things can be frustrating when they happen. A night like last night, obviously very frustrating, but the Jays overall pretty good with runners in scoring position. Um, They hit for power. Well, also with runners or sorry, they're very good with the bases loaded. They hit for average less well with runners in scoring position, um, but still for power pretty well. So a bit of a psychological biases trick on us there. Let's take a look at tonight's lineups. The Jays are going with the top seven you've more or less come to expect. George Springer, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, Alejandro Kirk at DH, Matt Chapman, Teoscar Hernandez, Danny Jansen behind the plate. Yes, Danny Jansen has ascended to... Uh, I'm including him in the top seven. That used to be Lourdes Gurriel's spot, but while he's on the IL, that's Danny Jansen's slot right now. He's been like the second hottest Jays hitter um, for almost two months now. Hitting eighth and playing left field is Whit Merrifield. And then Kevin Biggio rounds it out at second base. So uh, Biggio, the lone lefty in the lineup. Santiago Espinal um, left yesterday's game. We don't have an update on him just yet, but notable that Kevin Biggio gets the start here. Um, Whit Merrifield starting in left field for just the third time as a Blue Jay. He's got four starts in right, nine in center, seven in second base. So they continue to to bounce him around a little bit. And he starts two games in a row, which hasn't been all that common for him. That's the lineup that'll be behind Jose Barrios. Barrios comes into this one with a 499 ERA. It's finally below five. Um, the... Underlying metrics, so they say that's about accurate. He has a 463 fielding independent pitching, uh, a 520 expected ERA, which is the stack cast version um, that looks at quality of contact and swings and misses and walks and things like that. However, over the last six games, last six appearances, Brios has a 295 ERA, and he's 3-0. The 3-0 thing is like a Barrios thing all year long where the Jays win most of the time when he's starting, even if he's bad. Um, 17 of 29 of his starts have been average or better based on baseball references game score. The issue is that there haven't been the great starts to balance out the bad starts. Um, He hasn't had a lot of outlier good starts is uh, the issue, but maybe 
he's in a little bit of a groove here. 3-0, 295 ERA over his last six appearances. On the season, still grades very high in terms of limiting walks and in terms of getting swinging, swings outside of the zone. But it's pretty rough in terms of quality of contact and all the expected metrics. Um, also, just not a lot of swing and miss there. And that's in part because the fastball and sinker haven't been that good. The change-up's all right, but if the fastball and sinker aren't great, the changeup has less to play off of. And then the curveball is elite, but how much can you get away with throwing the curveball? Well, the answer to that recently has been actually to throw it a little less when you have two strikes. That seems counterintuitive to throw your best pitch less off less often when you have two strikes. However, he was throwing it a lot with two strikes. It was getting maybe a little bit predictable. He's almost in Ross stripling territory now where um, over the last over September so far with two strikes, he throws his four pitches almost equal amounts. So that's really tough to, to guess what's coming. That shows a good confidence level also in his uh, ability to execute with two pitches overall. The curveball has dipped off in um, overall usage just a little bit of late, which is kind of surprising because there were there was a three-month stretch there where it was his most used pitch, and it is his best pitch. It probably should be his most used pitch, but this is about mixing four pitches um, for deception and to keep hitters off balance because it was getting a little predictable when all he had to rely on was the curveball guys could sit on it maybe a little bit more. Um, anyway, it, it continues to be Barrios chasing a moving target when it comes to his effectiveness this year. You just hope that what's clicked lately can carry over. He saw the Rays twice earlier this year, April 8th and July 1st. Only three earned runs over 11 and a third innings over those two starts. But he got kind of fortunate. 17 base runners over those 11 and a third innings, uh, stranded a lot of them, only struck out seven batters in that time. So uh, a little dicey maybe. G-Man Choi has been solid against Barrios in his career. Harold Ramirez and Yandy Diaz uh, less so, but neither of those guys are in the starting lineup today, as you might expect. Um, Manuel Margot and Randy Arozarena hit Barrios really hard and just didn't get the results. Both of those guys are in the lineup today. We'll see if that Corrects. Um, Jose Brios, of course, with fairly big platoon splits. So guess what the Tampa Bay Rays are doing? Throwing six lefties at him. They'll line up as follows. Jonathan Aranda. That is Alejandro Kirk's childhood buddy. Manuel Margot, Wander Franco, Randy Rosarena, David Peralta, Francisco Mejia, Jose Siri, G. Manchoy, and Taylor Walls. So uh, six lefties or switch hitters in there. On the other side, the Rays are listing JT Chargois as their starter slash opener. He has a 276 ERA on the year, 495 fielding independent pitching. The big question with Chargois is, does the monster home run per fly ball rate get credited to him? Or is that a little random? Anytime you're talking about reliever samples, there's going to be some noise there. But in three of his last four seasons, Chargois has had a very high home run per fly ball rate. And the one season he didn't, it was average. So I think that's a decent amount of evidence that he's a little home run pro, which is a little surprising because he throws that 96 mile an hour sinker uh, for a heavy, heavy ground ball rate. 
and an 87-mile-an-hour slider that has pretty poor contact numbers and just an okay whiff rate for a slider, but guys don't don't tee it up too much. Um, maybe it's just he makes mistake pitches. Maybe it is just noise over a multi-year small sample. He's expected to be followed by Ryan Yarbrough, so they'll go righty to open, lefty to follow. Yarbrough is a guy who has elite, elite exit velocities and hard hit numbers, so guys don't hit him hard very often. Good walk rate, gets guys to chase outside of the zone, and then when you look at things like velocity and spin and swing and miss rate, uh, they're all really, really low. So how is he doing this? Well, against righties, he's going to go cutter, curveball, changeup, sinker. We just talked about how Barrios is kind of nudged toward having four pitches of, hey, any your best guess is as good as anyone's at what's coming in two strike situations. That's Yarborough all the time against righties uh, cutter curveball, change up sinker that he'll mix in the curveball is his best pitch by far. Um, but he will mix those four pretty consistently against lefties. Biggio is the only one in the lineup. So maybe you don't care about this as much. He mostly goes curveball sinker against lefties kind of ditches the change up and doesn't need to use the cutter. The Jays have a monster sample against Ryan Yarbrough over 200 plate appearances um, in his career, pretty middling results, like nothing special. Teoscar Hernandez though, six home runs off this guy hitting six tonight might be uh might be something to look at there. Kevin Biggio has also been really good against Ryan Yarbrough, despite the lefty lefty matchup. This is kind of a Kevin Biggio thing where when we talk about potential platoons with him and Merrifield and Espinal across two positions um, with Biggio, it's not just as simple as lefty righty. There are some pitcher types he tends to do better against. And um, Yarbrough here is one he profiles well against George Springer has had a tough time in his career against Yarbrough. We'll see. Um, also an interesting thing, if the Jays get going in the first inning or if JT Chargois is allowed to pitch a second inning, he hasn't gone past two innings this year, so that'd be it. But Teoscar Hernandez has six career home runs against Yarbrough, and he's 0 for 6 with three strikeouts against Chargois. So uh, be interesting to see how that shakes out. This is the first of four. The Jays have not confirmed their starters for the rest of the series um, just yet, but we are expecting Alec Manoa and Mitch White in some order Friday and Saturday. Um, Dan Schulman laid out a interesting case earlier for bumping Manoa to Saturday. If you are willing to implicitly concede the division, because he then lines up with a little bit more rest heading into the playoffs, doesn't pitch against the Yankees, uh, starts game one of a wild card series on better rest. So Manoa and White in some order Friday, Saturday. We would assume Ross Stripling on Sunday based on the normal patterns. Tampa Bay is going to go, or at least they are listing, Jeffrey Springs, Drew Rasmussen, Shane McClanahan Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So yeah, you'll get another look at Shane McClanahan. Uh, Didn't go super well for the Blue Jays last time. We'll see how that one continues. Uh, Worth keeping an eye on, of course, what the Yankees are doing both for the Aaron Judge element and to see if that series Monday to Wednesday is going to mean much for the Jays or if it's just going to be, uh, you know, kind of settle in, play for home field in the wild card for sure, but more take a focus on what you look like in the wild card series. So keep an eye on New York. Keep an eye on Baltimore because that's the Jays' cushion to, to try to 
clinch a playoff spot. They're six and a half up on Baltimore right now. Could unlikely, but could clinch as early as Sunday now. And of course, I'd say keep an eye on Tampa Bay, but that's who the Blue Jays are playing. So uh, you will obviously be keeping an eye on them. As Dan Schulman pointed out earlier, that guy's a pro, eh? He points out all the good things. Uh, if the Jays take three or four against Tampa, they'll not only be four up on them, they'll also then take the season series. So they'd hold the tiebreaker as well. Uh, so a lot on the line here. Uh, one more note. Shout out to Jamie Campbell. He's been named the 2022 honoree of the Sports Media Canada President's Award. Uh, couldn't be more deserved. Also, Nate Pearson struck out four batters yesterday, sitting 98. And uh, the Jays are expected to sign Emmanuel Bonilla, Baseball America's number four international free agent in this class. Fan drive time's next. Show Ali and Julia Kreutz with you post-game for Jays talk tonight. Um, Ben Wagner on the call at 640. Jay's Talk Plus is back with you 3 to 5 tomorrow on Sports at 590 The Fan.